Let's turn to Luke chapter 5 as we continue to, in this little mini-series of verifying the Lord and His authority. And this morning's uh, title to the sermon is The Good Old Boys Versus Jesus. Uh, we could say uh, another thought I had was grumpy old men versus Jesus. So whatever you want to choose is fine there. Let, let me start with this. In a lot of churches in the U.S., including the one that I grew up in, there are typically a group of men, a good old boys, grumpy old men, maybe grumpy old women too, so I don't want to leave you out, <laughs> who run the church to their liking. They hold the status quo. The word change is a four-letter word. The, ways, the way things were in the past is their vision for the future. <clears throat> Music, don't mess with it. The way you dress on Sunday morning better be in line with the unspoken but very real rules of dress. There's an inbredness to their little church kingdom. They look alike. They talk alike. And by gosh, whatever you do, do not try to change what we've had going on here at this church for the past 80 years. We made this church. We paid for this church. Our parents and grandparents started this church. And when a new pastor is hired, <clears throat> they engage him with what I call sugary sweetness, at least in the South. But let that new pastor cross their invisible but real line with much needed biblical change. To try to take that body where he, it is needed to go for a long time and they will turn on him like a pack of wild dogs. And they'll devour him. They'll devour his family. And eventually he'll leave. They'll get what they wanted. And the process starts all of, over again until they get their yes man. Control is the marching orders, and if Jesus Christ himself walked in, they would turn on him too. This morning's text is the ancient version of the modern drama, this modern drama that I have described that has been played out over and over in churches across America. So let's read this morning, Luke 5, 33 <clears throat> through 39. And they said to him, to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says... <clears throat> The old is good. <clears throat> so what are we reading here? The best thing to do when we read a text that's sort of like, what's he saying, is to go back and get some context for that text. And we do that by going back a few verses. 
So here Jesus is saying in a nutshell that he requires a major remake on religion. And the issue at hand is seen in verse 33 with this question on the religious practice of fasting and prayer. And obviously Jesus has ruffled their feathers. Now how did Jesus ruffle the feathers? Well, we got to use who is they? And we look, it says, and they said to him, they is the Pharisees and the scribes. They are the theological bigwigs of the day. They have not been happy with Jesus since he laid the gauntlet down and he healed the leper and he sent the leper to the priest so that the priest could prove that he was certainly healed. Now, after that happened, can you imagine the texting, the twitting, the Facebooking, the blogging that went on? When they heard about that, word spread like wildfire. Someone is healing lepers, and that's unheard of. And then next in the context, we move down to verse 17, Luke 5, 17. So what's happened after that event is the religious leaders gather together. They want to hear this guy, Jesus, who is healing lepers. They want to hear him teach. They want to hear more from him. They want to hear what he has to say. So it says there in, in verse 17, they came from everywhere, from Galilee and even from Jerusalem, from the top theological Jewish seminary in the world, the big Jesus came into town. So we have this gathering or a theological symposium, and they've come together. And in verse 24, in front of all the big cheeses, all the theological gurus, Jesus says he's the son of man. <laughs> That's a prominent, huge title for God's anointed king in the Old Testament. And that he not only is the son of man, but he has authority to forgive sins. And only God has authority to forgive sins. Uh-oh, or Scooby-Doo would say, right? And then to prove that what he said is true, he tells the paralytic man, get up, rise, and go home. He does this in front of the who's who in theology. He does this in front of the good old boys. He does this in front of the grumpy old men who had this stranglehold on the religious power amongst the Jewish people. He then emerges, we go to verse 27, he emerges from the symposium, theological symposium, to call Levi, or better known, we know him as Matthew, the disciple, to follow him. Now, Levi, or Matthew, is a verified 100% pure sinner. He is a tax collector that has gotten rich on the backs of those who didn't have much. He's crooked as a snake. And Matthew, we see in 27 through 32, Matthew, Matthew throws a party. He throws a party and then invites his other crooked snake tax collector friends to come to that party. And what was the occasion of that party? It was that Jesus had said to leave everything and you follow me. That was Matthew's joy. He said, man, this is a celebration. This is a party. The God of the universe has come to me, called me to himself, challenged me to leave everything behind, all of it, and follow me in a new way of life. 
So it's in this context that the Pharisees and scribes ask that question. Jesus, why are your disciples feasting when we fast? The theological bigwigs, their whole lives have been built on erecting power structures and tradition to declare who's in with God and who's out with God. And now they see that Matthew was definitely out. No doubt he's the tax collector. He's not in. But now Jesus comes on the scene and says he's now in. <laughs> there's, a, there's a spiritual remake that needs to take place. So we come to verse 33 and we come to the inquisition or the question. Let's read it again together. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. This question is pointing to the breach of religious traditions from Judaism. Now, Judaism, we got to remember, was a beautiful thing. It was what God created that was supposed to be this old covenant that was to be perfectly when Jesus arrived. Because everything in the Old Testament Judaism pointed to what? The Messiah coming. Every sacrifice, every practice, everything they did spoke about the Messiah. And it was supposed to beautifully dovetail into what we have as Christianity. But the religious leaders of the day actually added 600 things that the Old Testament didn't say. These, these works of the law, these, these added requirements, added commandments, and they perverted and twisted what was supposed to be beautiful. Judaism called for, this perverted Judaism called for prayers and fasting that had been added to what God said actually about prayers and fasting. And here's how they did it. They made it routine. Prayers and fasting prayed at certain hours of the day in the public to show their spirituality in front of people. Now, is that what God intended? No. Matter of fact, he spoke to that in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't do it before men. And here's what they would also do. They would read or recite these prayers publicly, meaning they were heartless, and they did it Basically, infused in, in, in it every Monday and Thursday. That was their routine. So they say here, Jesus, your disciples ignore our traditions. They even ignore the practice of John the Baptist's disciples did the same thing. Sure they did, because it wasn't traditions that Jesus came to fulfill. <laughs> this is our religion, Jesus, and you are violating it. How can we accept you as a spokesman from God? How can we accept you as the Messiah when you don't even observe our religion. Now about John the Baptist, his disciples were mentioned here. You got to remember, we got to go back to Luke 3. We got to remember that, that John the Baptist certainly urged his disciples to transfer this, this, their allegiance from Judaism, okay, whether it be the beautiful Judaism or the perverted one. He, he, he said, transfer that to Jesus. Did he not? Yeah, he said, look, here he is. He's the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. And in John 3.30, he said, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. But reality is, when he said that, when Jesus was baptized, not all of John the Baptist's followers were there. 
thousands, if not ten thousands of people who had gone out into the desert to hear John the Baptist. And so there was still confusion at this point. And we know even as we get into the Gospels, we know that disciples during those three years, the clarity wasn't there. So, so their hearts may have been right, John the Baptist's disciples, but they had a model. And their model were who? The Pharisees and the scribes. So they did what they saw, but it was, it was in some ways the blind leading the blind. They followed the good old boys in their practices. Now we got to remember too that John the Baptist, where was he at this point? He was in jail. So he couldn't instruct them. He couldn't give them any more input. He was about to be beheaded by Herod. And we see in Acts 19 where, where the early church ran into disciples of John the Baptist who had at some point heard him preach in the desert. And it says they had never heard of Jesus. How about that? So news travels slowly, obviously. Now, when it came to fasting, we need to understand that in the Old Testament, there was actually only one command from God for all the people of God to fast. <clears throat> it was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, and other passages. It was a time for the whole nation of Israel to abstain from food, feel the pain of hunger, take a deep dive and a humble dive into their soul to confess their sin and mourn over their sin and grieve over their sin. That one time commanded for the whole nation. We also know in the Old Testament there are plenty of other times of fasting during heartbreak and serious times, serious issues to pray to God. We have one-day fast, three-day fast, seven-day fast, and with Daniel, we have a three-week fast. But here's what we know today. This perverted brand of Judaism, even today, Orthodox Jews continue to practice rote fasting and alms done publicly to parade their so-called godliness before men. And again, Jesus spoke down to that in Matthew 5 on the Sermon of the Mount. So, so here, this passage begins to point out the very reason there was this ongoing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and why they eventually executed him. It's hostility toward him. And here's the deal. It is based on the fact that the gospel is, is exclusive. That the gospel, the gospel came to replace this perverted brand of Judaism. We see here part of it in the verses before with Levi. Judaism, this perverted brand of Judaism, stays away from sinners. Jesus is with sinners feasting. How about that? So, we have the question, the inquisition. Secondly, we have the interpretation. Look with me in verse 34 and 35. Let's read it again. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus answers their question with a question. Now, he does that a lot. That would be great communication for us. I'm going to ask us a question, and we want to say something and just sting them. Just ask a question back. That's what he does here. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, at this point, 
They, the Pharisees and scribes, have failed to properly identify and verify who Jesus is. In some ways, there's a new sheriff in town. In some ways, there's a new leader in town. But the Pharisees and scribes don't realize who he is. They haven't rightly identified and verified who he is. So in light of that, they don't really know how to respond to him. It is true for you and I. But let me say this first. Let me say, there may be a human tendency for us to feel compassion and empathy and sympathy for the Pharisees and scribes that they just don't understand. But here's the reality. We just go back to these five chapters back in Luke 1. They've had all the evidence and all the miracles they need at this point to say, he's the one. And they refuse. It's the same with us. So far that you and I fail to understand who Jesus is, we will fail to respond to him properly. Jesus is always demanding of us a radical rethink. I want you to put that in your head because once we think, oh, I got it. Oh, I got it. Jesus does his work in us. And the things that I used to see 10 years ago, I see totally different because 10 years later, I see Jesus more clearly. Have you, have you experienced that in your own growth? Yes. He's always demanding this radical rethink. Now, <clears throat> I get what's happening here because there has been times when I have failed to identify a person correctly. I think back on this particular afternoon in northern Kentucky. And for six years, I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cincinnati Reds. And I was, look, I was used to hanging around these guys. I got tired of hanging around these guys. But I knew all the Reds and all the Bengals. And they ate at our home. And I've been to their house. And they were my friends. Those guys were the guys that I did life with in some ways. And so two Bengals and a Red and I go to uh, play golf. And as we're on the practice range before we were playing, this guy walked up. He was probably 5'3", 5'4", 118 pounds, soaking wet. And he looked so different, obviously, in contrast to the Bengals and Reds. One Bengal was 6'7", 320, right? And, um, and he came up, and they chatted with him a minute, and he made his way over to me. And I shook his hand, and... and uh, I told him my name, and he told me his name, Steve Cawthorn. I said, nice to meet you. And so I was just cutting the fool with him and chit-chatting. I said, you know, what do you do for a living? He says, I, uh, I ride horses. And I was like, that's a bummer career, right? <laughs> like, who rides horses, you know? So I was like, this guy's a big loser, you know? That's what went through my head. I said, oh, do you just, is that a hobby of yours? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> is that a hobby of yours or do you do that full-time? And very humbly, he said, full-time. So, oh, do, do, do you get paid for that? He said, yeah, like that's my job. And I said, oh. I said, well, tell me a little. He said, well, I race horses. I said, oh, okay. I said, do you ever, have you ever, is there ever a chance or do you ever dream about like racing in the only race I knew was the Kentucky Derby, like in the Kentucky Derby? He said, yeah, I, I've already raced in that race. And I thought, hmm. I said, well, how'd you do? Expecting some, well, you know. I'm like, is this guy lying to me? That's what I'm thinking, right? He says, well, I actually won it. <laughs> I mean, part of me wanted to back up and go, oh, right. 
So what I found out, <laughs> what I found out was he was the youngest jockey ever to win the triple crown on the horse affirmed in 1978. He was the first jockey to win over $6 million. He was the only jockey ever in the history of the world to be Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year. I have failed to understand or identify who Steve Cawthorn was. Therefore, I also failed to what? To properly respond to him. We often do that with Jesus. When we fail to understand who Jesus is, you'll fail to respond to him properly. He demands a radical rethink. And so here's the rethink Jesus is giving them. Jesus answers their question with a question. How can people fast when the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is saying you don't fast at a wedding because it's a time of celebration. It's a feast. Now, some of us dads with daughters are thinking, I would like that tradition to change, right? Uh, we're going to fast at the wedding, you know. <laughs> I see cash going back in my pocket instead of out of my pocket, right? And, but if you think about a wedding, look, is that not the funnest food in the world? It's laid out. Women and men and, and caterers have spent hours on it. It's gourmet. And I mean, you just got chocolate running over this fountain. You're sticking your hand in it, you know, and I mean, wedding food is great food. Jesus is saying, you don't get it. The bridegroom is here, and I'm the bridegroom. You, Pharisees and scribes, should know that the Old Testament speaks often of God being the bridegroom of his people. Isaiah 54 says, your maker is your husband, the Lord of the host is his name. And I've given you evidence that I'm the bridegroom. And you say it's time to mourn and fast? No, it's time to feast. Charles Swindoll puts it this way. Jesus' point is that the disciples didn't need to fast in order to concentrate and intimately connect with God. They could just reach out and touch him. Literally. In verse 35, Jesus responds as well. And he says, there will be a time to fast in the future when the bridegroom is taken away. That word taken away literally means snatched suddenly and violently. It is Luke's first reference to the execution and death of Christ. This will be a time to fast because they will be heartbroken. And fasting will be a productive means to connect with God as we feel hunger pains to remind us of our need with him and need to connect with him until he returns for the second time and then we have that eternal marriage feast described in Revelations. So Judaism... This Judaism that had been perverted and twisted and turned into a system of works, extra biblical commands, and it's, is completely out of sync with the gospel. It does not recognize the Messiah. Matter of fact, what should have happened is these Pharisees and scribes said, you're the one Jeremiah told me about. You're the one Isaiah told me about. You're the one. You're the one. But they didn't. 
And so this perverted brand of Judaism don't, does not recognize the Messiah, doesn't recognize the bridegroom. The gospel is unique, though. It is incompatible with all other religions. It stands alone and cannot blend in with other religions. It cannot blend in with Roman Catholicism, a system of works. It cannot blend in with liberalism. It cannot blend in with universalism, which says ultimately everyone goes to heaven. It cannot blend in with Mormonism or Buddhism or any other kind of ism. The gospel is exclusive and accommodates no other religions and at the same time replaces all other religions. The singular nature of the gospel means that it becomes null and void if anything is added to it and if anything is taken from it because all other religious systems or a system of works to one degree or another to try to earn favor with God. Therefore, Jesus didn't come to add to this perverted brand of Judaism or to alter it or to blend it with Christianity. He came to replace it. Let me take us back to Paul in Galatians 1. Paul had gone to Galatia. He had planted the church. He had shared the gospel there. People had come to Christ and they begin to grow. He was there 18 months. He knew these people and he left. And here's what he heard was happening. Judaizers, Jewish folk, religious folk came in and they said, what the apostle Paul told you was great about Jesus' death and shed blood on the cross and you placing your trust in that. But he didn't tell you everything. He forgot to tell you that you need to add circumcision to that in order to really be saved. And so we're going to come in and give you the back half of the real gospel. And when Paul heard that, he was like, well, that'll work. No, he lost his mind. If you want to see a man who is angry with righteous anger and fire, you read Galatians 1. He says, Galatians, I mean, it starts off with fire. How dare you? How dare you run away from the gospel of grace so fast and go to a gospel of works? If anyone adds to the gospel, if anyone takes away to the gospel, anathema, and he put it twice together, damn you twice, damn them twice. Because Paul says if you add something or take away something from the gospel, it makes it null and void. And the last thing on earth Paul wanted was people trusting in a false gospel to think they were okay. So here's what Jesus does now. He gives us three illustrations to make that exact point in verses 36 through 39. Let's read those real quick. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Notice here in, in these seven verses, the word new is used, these four verses, the word new is used seven times. There's something new happening. So the first one I'll call the seamstress, verse 36. Jesus says, in, in essence, if you have a, if you're a man and you have a brand new coat and and dress pants, a dress suit, and you have an old pair of jeans. You would not cut out a patch from the new dress suit and put on the jeans. 
Because one, it would ruin the suit. And besides that, it would not match the jeans. A new piece of cloth from a suit made of wool of polyester does not look good sewn into a pair of jeans. Can you say amen, right? So what is he saying there? Jesus is saying you can't just patch me into your perverted religious system. I've come to do something radical. Judaism is an old garment, the jeans. And you can't take a piece of the gospel and just patch it in. Jesus did not come with a message of patching in an old system, but actually replacing it. Now, let me make a note here. I need to circle this, a little note, a little remember. The old garment here is not the Old Testament. The old garment is not God's holy law, which is eternal, and that Jesus and the gospel ultimately fulfills. This is Judaism that has been twisted and perverted, as I said, with those 600 extra biblical commands that the Pharisees and scribes added to God's law. Jesus is not saying that the Old Testament is wrong. He never said that. Matter of fact, in Luke 24, 44, he actually says that he was written about by what? In the law of Moses, by the prophets, and in the Psalms. Jesus is such a radical fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that what he is doing cannot be stitched into old practices and old traditions, the perverted brand of Judaism. Number two, second illustration, is the Vintner, is how you say it. I looked it up last night. What is the Vintner? It is a winemaker, fancy name for winemaker. We had some of those back in Selma, North Carolina, where I grew up, a few winemakers, but they were more wine drinkers than they were makers, right? Look at verse 37 and 38. And no one puts new wine into the old wineskins, and if he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. So we know this, that wineskins were made out of animal skins, probably goat skins. And an old wineskin or animal skin would be brittle and, uh, and would be stiff, and then a new wineskin or animal skin would be soft and supple. So when you're making wine and you get the new wine, you, you're not going to, they would actually pour it into the new skin because during the fermentation process, there would be gas that would expand and the soft and supple new skin would, would flex during the process. But if you poured it into an old wineskin, during that process, the skin would burst, you would ruin the skin, and you would lose all the wine. Jesus is using this very typical illustration in their day to say this. You cannot put the gospel, the new thing, into Judaism or into any works-based righteousness system. The gospel is new wine and cannot be mixed with old. And if you do, you ruin the gospel. The new wine, the gospel, put into old wineskins, this perverted brand of Judaism, will burst the old wineskins and the gospel will be lost. Now here's how Paul addressed that later in Galatians, Galatians 5.4. He says, if you do this, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Judaism, this perverted brand, 
is the old skins that could not contain the gospel. Think about this with me. Let's go back to the Old Testament. What was the temple for? The temple was a place where man was to be made right with God. Jesus replaces the temple. Him and his work on the cross makes us right with God. What was the Old Testament priest for? He was a mediator between man and God. And the scripture tells that Jesus is our one mediator who gives us relationship between God and man. What was the Old Testament law for? To show us the character of God and to expose our sin and inability to keep the law. So what happens now is Jesus actually writes his law on our hearts through his spirit and he declares us righteous, not based on our law keeping, but based on his law keeping and he kept it perfectly. So he fulfills perfectly the Old Testament. And here's what Jesus would say. And he's trying to say here this morning, there's something new happening. There's a new commandment. There's a new covenant, old to new. There's a new community, those who trust me, not those just who has Israel in their middle name. There's a new city. It's not Jerusalem. It's heaven. And there therefore is an end to man-made religion. That is a radical rethink. Then and now. And I'll get to that in a minute at the end. And then lastly, his third illustration. The sommelier. How do you like that? I like sommelier. Sommelier is a wine steward. It's a fancy name for an expert wine taster. That'd be a heck of a job, wouldn't it? Jesus is making a human observation here. He knows humans, so he's just observing. And this is what it would look like in our modern day time. He's saying, take the person who's been drinking the same wine for 25 years. They buy it at Kroger. It's $3 a bottle. And I actually went to Kroger and you can find this. Oak Leaf Sweet Red. Some of y'all are thinking, that's my wine right there. I like Oak, Oak Leaf Sweet Red. $3 a bottle. It tastes like a combination of cough syrup and cherry licorice. You know what I mean? But you like it. You've been drinking it for years. You get a bottle every week. Maybe, let's say, a month, okay? <laughs> and more than that, you can afford it. But then you, get, you meet someone, and you get asked over to this big wine-tasting event, and you, you're at a sommelier's house. You're at an expert wine-taster's house. And as you're there, he gives you some Dom Leroy Chamberlain Grand Cru. <laughs> How about that? Now that's real. You can look it up. I did my wine research this week. It's only $7,400 a bottle. He, he gives you that, and he says, hey, I'll supply you a bottle every two weeks. And you say, no, I'm good. Now, I, I know that's more expensive and all that, and you like it better, but I, I've been drinking my sweet oak leaf. For 25 years. I, lo I love my wine. Jesus is saying, this is the sad part to the Pharisees and scribes. Those who trust in work systems. 
You have been drinking that old wine of Judaism for so long you have no interest in the gospel. You have cultivated your taste for your traditions and your practices and your works, trusting in your own works. Your religion has become so a part of the fabric of your life that you can never see and you do life another way. And the sad part is they will die in that way. It's why it's so hard as we make a transition from there to now. It's so hard to reach religious people with the gospel. There's a synonym for Pharisees and scribes in our culture. So we got Pharisees and scribes, and I'm going to connect this dot to legalist or legalism. There's a real connection there. So that's our application. As we think about the so what this morning, I want to make that connection. Tim Keller defines legalism like this. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. I've seen that happen throughout the church where someone sins and they fall apart. They shock themselves. How could I do that? Really? That shows what they're trusting in, their own their own goodness. Spurgeon says we're all born legalists. John Piper defines legalism as the conviction that law-keeping is the ground for our acceptance with God. It is a failure to be amazed by grace. Did you see Levi's call there? Levi was amazed by grace, and what did he do? He threw a party, and he brought sinners there, and he said, Let me, I'm going to tell you what happened to me. When grace becomes ho-hum, we become legalist. And I'll tell you, this is, this is a little side note that's personal for me. When I find myself being ultra-critical, I know I'm making that transition from grace-based, gospel-centered man to legalist man. A gospel-centered person would put it like this. A Jesus-centered person would put it like this. No one needs Jesus more than me. If you see yourself genuinely like that, you're getting it. If you know how to correct yourself from legalism to that statement, no one needs Jesus more than me. Because Jesus is saying he came to save the people who recognize their need for him. A legalist add their convictions and traditions to the word of God. They add crazy stuff, and the church is full of that, is it not? A legalist covers their sin instead of confessing and repenting. They look good and moral and lawful on the outside, but they are full of lawlessness, lawlessness in their private lives. I love, let me finish with this, how Sinclair Ferguson summarizes this. He says, grace rules out all qualifications by definition. Grace, therefore, eliminates boasting. Grace suffocates boasting. 
It silences any and all negotiations about our contribution before they can even begin. By definition, we cannot qualify for grace in any way, by any means, or through any action. Thus, it's understanding God's grace. That is to say, understanding God himself that demolishes legalism. Grace highlights legalism's bankruptcy and shows that it's not only useless, it's pointless. So this morning, as you make that connection between the Pharisees and the scribes to your own tendency, we're all born to be legalists, Spurgeon says. I trust Spurgeon over me. (laughs) Uh, Make that connection. Where is it that you show or your legalism begins to grow and then wallow in the great grace of God? And throw a party for others like you. Take a minute to ask the question, so what?